Mud Stories, Episode 16. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place I really see God's hand so much in my complete story, even from the time of conception. I think that's true of, of all of us. If we look at our story, even write it out, I think even before you are a believer, you can see where He was showing up in your life. And that's very true of my own story. Hi, my name is Jackie Watkins, your host, and you're listening to Mud Stories a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are not alone. Hey friends, welcome back to the Mud Stories podcast. Wow, I am so excited you're here with me today, and I just am so thankful for those of you who are showing up each and every week and listening to these mud stories with me. I know when I record them, they are very encouraging to me, and I'm just so thankful for a lot of you who have given feedback and encouragement to me to help me know that these stories are making a difference in your life, and they are bringing you the hope that I've intended in recording them. And so I also wanted to um, give some thanks to some of you who have sent me messages or gone over to iTunes and left some ratings or reviews. And I just thought it'd be kind of fun to read a few of those on the show before we dive into our conversation with Natalie today. So uh, really quick, Gas Forever says, This is an amazing podcast. I love seeing how other people have overcome trials and struggles with the help and grace of God. The interviews are my favorite part, and she has some really well-known guests on here. Excellent listen. Luke writes, I love your show. What an awesome way to spread the faith through the world. Keep up the faithful work. I will be listening very often. God bless. Gary writes, life got you down? Well, this show will help drag you out of the mud. The stories are so inspirational. And then Tim writes, mud, brilliant. This is what I'm talking about. Sometimes as Christians, we forget that it's okay to make mistakes and get messy or muddy. Jackie shines light on that and lets us be who we are and get through it. And then just this morning, I received a Facebook message from a listener, and I just found her message so encouraging. I wanted you to hear it. I know you all are listening, doing all kinds of different things. I know I listen to podcasts doing, you know, random things around the house, or uh, I do a lot of listening while I'm driving, uh, cooking, whatever it is. And so here's an example. Jennifer Miller wrote to me and she says, I am an employee of a cleaning company and my job is to clean a church. I listen to mud stories as I work. This year has been one of transition and deeper introspection and the podcast is such a gift. Thank you very much for your transparency. It's so refreshing and affirming. Well, Jennifer, I'm so glad you're listening. And as you clean tonight, may this story be encouraging to you. 
Also, I wanted to thank those of you who are sharing this podcast with people in your real life. I think the best way to grow our show and to really bring these stories to people so they can be encouraged is when you guys are all willing to share about this podcast with someone in your real life, someone who might need to be encouraged or someone who just wants to listen to inspiring stories of how God has met people in their everyday struggles and trials and adversity. And so thank you for sharing in person with even just one friend. If you can think of someone in your life who would be encouraged by listening to these mud stories, I just would so appreciate it if you'd share it with them. So today, episode 16, I am so excited to have my friend Natalie Snap here. Natalie is a follower of Jesus, a wife to Jason, and mom to one spunky girl and two spirited boys. She lives in the Midwest with her energetic crew and is most passionate sharing about the grace, mercy, and truth of God's love for us all, regardless of our track record. She loves to tell the story of how she finally found God as an adult at the age of 27. And you can find Natalie writing over at her blog, nataliesnap.com. And she'll also be releasing her first book next spring called Heart Sisters, Being the Friend You Want to Have. In this episode, we discuss the challenges and difficulties of addiction, growing up as a child of divorce, and being a child of an alcoholic. Natalie shares the dysfunction of always needing to be in a relationship to feel purpose, the personal devastating effects of having an abortion, and the whirlwind and pain that came from being betrayed by a spouse's infidelity and drug addiction. So before we jump into my conversation with Natalie, you have to know something super important. This episode today will be part one of her story, and next week I don't want you to miss it as she continues on to share not only the good God brings from her tragedy, but all the advice and resources that she has to offer, which she'll share next week in episode 17, part two. So I hope you'll be able to join us for that next episode, but today, without further delay, here's part one of my conversation with Natalie Snap. Enjoy. Miss Natalie Snap, welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. Thank you so much for saying yes and joining me here. Well, thank you so much for asking me, my friend. Yeah, I'm so happy. So I thought I'd share a little bit about how you and I met. <laughs> it's so fun, all these stories, how you meet each other. Um, I think I first met you, and you correct me if I'm wrong, when we began to write for a contributing site together with Denise Thompson. Yes. Sisters in Bloom, I think it was called. Yes, that is correct. And then we met in person for the first time at She Speaks in 2012. I know. She Speaks is such a wonderful conference. That's held in July, right? Yes. That was a couple summers ago. Every summer in July. Yes. Every summer. Okay. And then not only did we meet Mm face-to-face two summers ago, but God did this awesome thing. My husband and I like to go on vacation with the kids 
on cruises because cruises can be such an amazing deal when you can get the reduced price for the kids. And then, you know, we get my parents to go and then the kids, some of the kids stay with them and some of them stay with us. And then the kids have a kids program the whole time. So you, you get the best of both worlds. Like people serve you, you get to travel and the kids get stuff. Yes. It's wonderful. Yeah. And so there we were, I think it was this last spring, uh, we flew to Florida and we were going on a Western Caribbean cruise with the kids and my parents. And, you know, they have that muster drill on the very beginning of the cruise and you go to your designated area and you have to wear your life jackets and they tell you the lowdown of everything that's going to happen. Well, I had my phone out because I don't know. It's this thing when you're when you have an online life, when you are on social media and you interact with lots of people online. I don't know. I was having anxiety that I was going to have to be <laughs> that I was going to have to be I with was too. I was right there with you. That I was going to have to be without the internet for one whole week. I mean, it's like <laughs> astronomical prices to connect to the internet or even check email on these cruises, right? So I was on my phone, and I'm on Facebook, and you know, Facebook changes their algorithms all the time. And so I just never know who's going to show up in my Facebook feed. You know, I, I haven't taken the time to selectively choose lists of who no, I want to see. I haven't see. done that either. I don't yeah. even understand how to do it. I, I know. Well, I'm, I'm getting there, but it's like on the back burner of the priority list, right? Absolutely. So there I am. And so I'm scrolling and I'm like, well, whatever's going to show up. And there is a status post update from my friend, Natalie Snap. And there's this picture and it's a picture of a door with a sign on it. And the sign is this printed piece of paper with a ship and it says, happy anniversary, Jason and Natalie. And, (laughs) and then in the comments, people are saying, oh, have an amazing time. And, and on there it had, they had printed out the name of the ship. And I was (laughs) looking at that and I took a double take and I'm like, that is the name of the ship I'm on right now. Oh, it was so nuts. And then I turned to Thad and I'm like, oh my goodness, I think my friend, my online friend (laughs) is maybe on this ship. He's like, no way, that can't be possible. (laughs) So then really quick, I messaged you because, you know, I don't know when we're going to lose internet. We're going to pull out of the port right then. And so you messaged me right back. You're like, yes. Anyway, we discover we are on the same Caribbean cruise for an entire week not even planned yes loved it so much we could never plan that never and I talk about face-to-face time I mean we sat by the pool and chatted for hours we went to dinner as couples we went to shows we played card games your great parents I know your precious kids I loved it oh so fun so fun so anyway we're just best friends now You bond when you're on a cruise, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Anyway, totally. had a fabulous time. Well, Natalie, I'm so glad you're here because I know your story and yes. it has God's redemption woven all throughout. Yes, and absolutely it does. It does. And life wasn't always picture perfect for you growing up. And in fact, you didn't really know much about God until you were older. So yes. take us back. Tell us about your mud along the way and how God met you in it time and time again. Well, from the very beginning, I think that my my earthly father was going to be a mystery in my life. Um, I was born through artificial insemination in 1973, and it was a relatively new process back then. And I didn't find that out until several years later. But um, my father on my birth certificate uh, actually ended up being a 
uh, a raging alcoholic, probably one of the worst alcoholics I have ever known. And my, my mother and he ended up divorcing when I was six. And there was a lot of pain involved during that time. Um, as mm-hmm. any child of an alcoholic will tell you, there was uh, dysfunctional fighting and um, infidelities on my father's part. And I remember finding uh, drinks hidden throughout the house and just not really able to understand what was going on at the time. I just knew something wasn't right. Right. So my parents divorced when I was six. And um, then it just kind of led to a couple turbulent years following that time period. And Natalie, how did it how did it feel as a six year old? I know divorce is so prevalent nowadays, you know, and I know when I got divorced, my son was three, but you know, I have a six-year-old right now and she's very, very sharp. She's very intuitive. And I mean, do you remember anything about what that felt like as a child? How, how did they handle everything? I do. Uh, my mother was amazing. Um, she is just a very, very wise woman and still is a very wise woman and was very protective of me. And I believe she made that choice to divorce my alcoholic father. Uh, it wasn't just she woke up one day and wasn't going to put up with it anymore. My father had been through treatment centers um, several times, had been to the best treatment centers in the country and just kept relapsing and falling off the wagon. And there comes a time, and as my story later shares, that with when you love someone who's addicted, the, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is no longer be with them. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very hard to make that decision. But um, I so remember- So she handled it with wisdom and grace and protected sure you. And, Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And so I, I didn't, I wasn't wise enough at six, obviously, to understand that that was going on. I just knew things weren't right. And my mom was very, very sad. And so from that aspect, I was an only child. And from that aspect, it was very- um, just kind of scary. We had a couple rough years after that. My mother remarried a man that just wasn't very nice, to be completely honest with mm. you. Um, and so I began to kind of overeat. That was my comfort. And so I became a, a pretty chubby kid. And so, you know, of course, I got made fun of and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then, though, as I hit fifth grade, I started to kind of pull out of that chubby phase. Um, the boys started to notice me. My mm-hmm. mother remarried a man who stepped in and was pretty much my father. Um, my alcoholic father would bounce in and out of my life, um, not on any kind of schedule. If he had sober moments, he would um, come in and out of my life. But for the most part, he was pretty non-existent in my life until he became sober later on. So that was pretty much my childhood. I remember that being just a a period of time that was up and down. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling very alone despite how wonderful my mother was in sheltering me and doing the best that she could with that. I still remember feeling very alone and just um, not very secure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that that's common a lot of times when we don't, as girls, we don't have a father figure that's really yes. stable yes. in our lives. And, yes, um, yeah. absolutely. And and that's a passion of mine. Um, I, I love to identify girls that I see who don't have fathers because I know uh, Meg Meeker has written a book called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. And it was such an interesting read for me because uh, there is absolutely a link between girls who do not have fathers and later behaviors. There's a higher rate of promiscuous behavior. There's a higher rate of uh, eating disorders, of drug use. And so you can really see just the detriment that an absence of a father leaves on the the soul of a little girl. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so important if there isn't um, that father figure present, sometimes as single moms, maybe it's a good idea to have 
you know, healthy men in our lives that maybe aren't necessarily romantically yes. involved with us, but yes. maybe people in the church or people in an extended family that right. can step right. in and really fill that role. Right. And I will say that just to offer hope uh, for any single moms who are listening, um, certainly I had a very active grandfather in my life who who really stepped in during those years when I didn't have a father figure. Um, he took such an interest in me and, and just really was a pivotal figure in my life. And then my mom did, as I said, remarried a, a really uh, great man when I was 12. And he pretty much raised me up until... Um, I left the house. So you're able to bond with him and connect yes. with him. And yes. well, that's, that's great. Yes. But that doesn't mean I didn't have some of the same issues that girls who grow up without a father. Right. Okay. So tell us about that. What ended up happening? Well, in high school, um, I became, I, w- I guess I would say addicted to having a boyfriend. I was never really promiscuous, but I needed to always have a boyfriend, be in some kind of serious relationship to feel mm-hmm. worth. And if I wasn't, I was really sad and kind of honestly, my world was rocked. I didn't know how to function without a boyfriend. And I think that was because I was so longing to have that father figure in my life Mm -hmm. um, and just that male influence. And so I didn't feel secure unless I had a a relationship with a boy. Well, and this is such an issue. I mean, I did a whole two podcast episodes with um, Christy Johnson. And we, I mean, mm-hmm. she's written a whole book about that, right? you know, in episode right. eight and nine. And it, what you're saying, it can't be more true. And I think it affects so many women. Some of us, even if we had a father that was present and still is our dad to this day, you know, it, it can be a really challenging thing to not find our worth and validation by a, a guy finding us attractive. Absolutely. You know, And just because my father wasn't physically present, I think that there are some women who grow up with a father who is present physically, but is not present mentally. And I think a lot of those uh, women can have the same kind of issues as well. Yeah. Or even just emotionally connected. I mean, they might mentally be present, but emotionally not. Yeah, I know. It's not, right. There's not as deep of a connectedness happening and, um, I know yes. we're we're planning for my daughter's 12th birthday and my husband's making all this, you know, big party plans. And he's like, babe, I have to just go all out because, you know, 13, 14, 15's coming. And I'm like, you know, let's just pursue. Let's just pursue. Even if it feels awkward for us as our children become adolescents, because it does, you know, our sons become men, our yeah. daughters become women. And, right. you know, sometimes as parents, we feel like, well, maybe we should be pulling back because it feels awkward no. when that adolescence comes, you know, but I think it's all the more reason to just pursue, pursue, I pursue agree. and press through that resistance because because yes. to them, they don't know anything's changing. And if we act like it's no big deal, you know, it's kind of like act your way into the feeling. I think yeah. they'll they'll respond so well to that continuing connectedness that we had when they were toddlers and small elementary agree. children. Absolutely yeah. agree. Yeah. yeah. So that's awesome that you had a, a stepdad that stepped in and really met that in your life. Yes. So boyfriends were the thing. Okay. Yes. So I became a a boyfriend addict. Now, um, when I was 12 and I entered into middle school and I had mentioned earlier that the boys had started to notice me, um, I caught the eye of an eighth grader who was a football player. This sounds so funny, doesn't it? As a 40 year old woman, this just (laughs) makes me laugh to talk about this, but, um, he was a big, bad eighth grader and I was in sixth grade and he was a football star. And anyway, um, 
I just kind of fell head over heels for him. And we were doing whatever 12 year olds do when they're, I guess, going together. I think that's what it was called. I'm going with him. I was going with him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And my family ended up moving. And so I lost touch with him. And that was that because, you know, I was 12. And I always uh, continued to have sort of a crush on this boy, even after we moved. So fast forward through my high school years, a lot of the same things, had to always have a boyfriend. Um, I ended up going to Indiana University in the fall of 1992. And after I was there a couple weeks, the phone rang and it was my boyfriend from sixth grade who was... No way. Yes. He was two years older than I was. And he was president of his fraternity and he was, um, you know, just... He was at the university with you. Yes. No yes. Way. Um, he awesome. attended the same college and he had found out from another, a mutual friend that I was there as a freshman and he invited me over to his fraternity to have lunch. And so of course I went, mm-hmm. um, because I still had a crush on him. And after that, that was pretty much it. We started dating from that point on and dated all through college and We were sort of like, I guess what you would call the golden couple. Um, I was the president of my sorority. He was the president of his fraternity. Everybody just expected us to get married. Mm-hmm. And we did. And so I need to back up a little bit, though, with my story and just say that my father, who was in and out of my life uh, throughout, um, he went missing for a couple years while I was in college. And so, wow. yes, it was very disconcerting, and obviously. And, you know, it was interesting to think back during that time, because if you would see me from the outside, you know, as I said, and I'm not meaning it in a bragging way, but on the outside, I was the president of my sorority. I was um, kind of the all-American college girl doing all the right things. Um, with the perfect boyfriend and the perfect life. With the perfect boyfriend, the perfect life. Yeah, right. Mm. So, but really the reality is that my father was missing. And two years later surfaced, he had been homeless and living on the streets of downtown Indianapolis. He surfaced at a shelter, a homeless shelter, and a man who had taken an interest in him, uh, who he had worked for, who he also had struggled with alcoholism, went down to the shelter and said, hey, I will help you get back on your feet. I will employ you, but you've got to stop drinking. And he had an incident that led him um, to the shelter and that he had a seizure at a drugstore. Um, and they picked him up and took him to Wishard Hospital, which is where all the uh, patients who don't have insurance go in mm-hmm. downtown Indianapolis. And um, so that was a real turning point for my father. But um, now this whole time that the supposed perfect life is going on, you find out your dad, you know, he's resurfacing and from his mm-hmm. missing years. Mm-hmm. Where did God fit into all of this? I mean, it had you. God hasn't actually fit in anywhere at this point yet because okay. I was not a believer. I was raised going to church. Uh, we did attend church, uh, in a small town, but, um, it was more of a, we certainly went on holidays. We went when it was convenient and I didn't even know what the gospel was. I had never even heard Mm -hmm. that term, the gospel until I was, uh, much older. Uh, I was 27 in fact. So at this point in my story, I'm about, um, 22. So we leave college. Everybody expects us to get married. My father is in an apartment in Lebanon, Indiana. He is sober finally for the first time ever in his life. Um, And I began to develop a relationship with my father, but it wasn't the typical father-daughter relationship. There were glimpses of that that would come in now and then, but for the most part, we were more uh, of a friendship, um, as strange as that sounds. Okay. And so then you began to work after college or... 
Yes. I took a job as a teacher and my uh, boyfriend was a stockbroker. And we were just kind of doing the young professional thing. And uh, unfortunately, not very responsibly because we became pregnant. I became pregnant by him. And it was uh, not what we had planned at all. Uh, We had planned a big wedding. We had planned just to start Mm -hmm. our life without a child uh, Mm -hmm. for the first couple of years. So it was unexpected, unexpected and unplanned pregnancy. It was very, very unexpected. I was 23 years old. I was certainly old enough to have a child. But because of just my own selfishness, to be completely honest, um, we chose to have an abortion. Mm. And what a hard decision. It was very, very difficult. And I'm very passionate about this now because knowing what I know now, I would have certainly made a very different decision. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that unfortunately in the world of abortion, we are taught and told that it's just a cluster of cells, that it's not a big Mm -hmm. deal. Uh, But what they don't talk about very often is the after effects of an abortion. And Mm -hmm. there are high rates of depression, um, and just feelings of unworthiness among women who have had an abortion, not everybody, but a lot of women who have experienced an abortion, especially women who go on to become believers or are believers, live under this umbrella of shame because it's such a controversial topic and it's really, really hard to talk about it. And yeah. Um, many women are scared they're going to be judged. Mm -hmm. And as was I, I've told my story many times. And for several years, I would just leave that part out. But one day I had a woman in my house and we were talking and she said, you know, I'm now an agnostic because I've done something that the Lord will never forgive me for. And immediately Mm -hmm. I knew what she was talking about. Mm -hmm. And it was then that I knew that if I didn't start speaking out about this, there were going to be a whole lot of women living in shame. Well, and I will validate exactly what you're saying about this because I work in labor and delivery. And so one of the questions I ask every single patient, what number of pregnancy is this? You know, and then I'll get the answer. And then when they're alone, I have to clarify and say, what number of pregnancy is this? Or were there any yeah. miscarriages or abortions? And You would be surprised how many women have had an abortion. And I will say, believe it or not, I think that it really is so profoundly damaging to their feelings of their heart. Yes. And, you know, from that point on, when my friend had said that to me, I just thought, you know, we can't be living with this shame and feeling like we can never be forgiven. I mean, that's just a bold-faced lie because there's not anything Nothing. That God will not forgive you for Absolutely. if you go to him with a humble and repentant heart. That's right. And so we then, about six months later, got engaged. And so we then got married. And about six months into our marriage, I just had noticed that things were a little off. There was something not right. And so one night... Um, and the things I noticed that were were off would be like just I didn't know where he was. Sometimes he would work very late without explanation. He would take off on Saturdays and I wouldn't know where he was. Just some shady stuff that in a marriage typically shouldn't go on. So I confronted him with this and he um, came forward and said that he had been using cocaine. And I need to say, too, that uh, he was definitely a, a guy that liked to have a good time in college. It wasn't that I, I didn't see this. I think that when you're in college and you're part of that lifestyle that we Mm -hmm. were a part of, um, it's hard to discern who has a problem with addiction and Mm -hmm. who is just doing the normal college thing. And so 
it was then that I started to see that maybe perhaps he did have a problem with addiction. And ironically enough, and this happens a lot of times too with, with women, we repeat the patterns of our mothers. And in no way am I blaming my mom for, <laughs> for me marrying an addict. Right. But it was interesting the parallel between I am now married to an addict versus mm. my alcoholic father. And so I was no stranger to addiction. I, I knew a lot about addiction for someone who was 27 years old. And um, did he get help? Did he want to change? I mean, what um, ended up happening there? Because I know I have a couple friends at work who, you know, similar situation. They just one day realized, wow, I'm completely married to a functioning drug addict. And, yeah. you know, then it's that challenge of, where do I draw the boundaries? You know, I love this person. I believe mm -hmm. in staying married. Mm -hmm. Like, how does counseling fit in? And so speak yeah. to that a little bit. If people are caught in that kind of a situation. Well, what actually happened is not what I would recommend. I, I wasn't a believer. And so, but I loved him very, very mm -hmm. much. And I was committed to, to standing by him. And so I insisted that he get help. And so what happened is, is that he went to a family therapist to get help. Now, I was naive at 27 and didn't quite understand that for someone who's addicted to cocaine, going to a family counselor is not probably going to work very well. I'm not saying <laughs> it can't work. I'm just right. saying that he needed to go to an addiction specialist. I mean, he really needed to go to an inpatient 30-day rehab is where he needed to go. But yeah. I was 27 and I just, I was very naive and I thought things would be okay. Actually 26 at the time. Well, he was probably super happy that you were satisfied with just a family Absolutely. counselor. He's like, awesome. I'll play the role. I'll do my gig. She'll be sure happy. Did. I'll keep using my stuff. Everything's uh -huh. good. Yep. He sure <laughs> did do that. Yeah. And so um, not surprisingly, about six months after that, after we thought I thought we were on the right path and everything, um, uh, it was Christmas time and I had been on uh, the phone with a girlfriend for a really long time, as girls do when they yeah. haven't talked to each other. Right. And I remember that he was in the shower when I got on the phone. And when I got off the phone about an hour and a half later, he was still in the shower. And I became very panicked because I thought, oh, goodness, uh, I'm going to open the door and he's going to be dead. I got up there and um, tried to open the door. It was locked. I began to pound on the door. Um, he wasn't responding. And so I started going through his briefcase, which was right outside the door. And I found a rolled up $20 bill with cocaine mm. residue on it. And so I continued to pound on the door. Thankfully, he came to the door uh, because I was indeed at that point expecting that he had overdosed. Mm. Um, but during that time, I had also found a, an unexplained cell phone bill with all these charges to Las Vegas and later found that he was doing um, an intense amount of gambling mm. and was also very heavily involved with strippers and prostitutes in the Las Vegas area. Oh, goodness. Completely living this uh, second life that I knew nothing about. Absolutely. I mean, here I am a little, I'm teaching second and third grade. In Indiana. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I had no idea that this was going on. And um, mm. so that just started a very, very heartbreaking period of my life. Because once all of that came to the surface, and he came forward, he realized that he was caught, and that there wasn't much he could do at that point. And he began to really get very hostile towards me, and said some very, very hurtful things during the, the couple of weeks that we were separated from one another. Yeah, um, well, because when addicts are pinned to the wall, and they know everything's going down, yes. like no family counselor is going to be working right now. That's right. This is like, choose yes or no, this is it. Yeah. So then the hostility comes out because they, they panic. 
right? That's right. Absolutely. And it, they're just like a wild animal being backed into a corner uh, when that happens. And so that started a very, very painful couple of weeks of my life um, because it was revealed um, obviously that he had an addiction to cocaine. But then I didn't know at the time uh, when I first left that he had charged about $35,000 worth of debt and a credit card in my name. Oh. And so it was just really a oh lot to goodness. take. Yeah, it was, it was really devastating. And you know, I was teaching at the time, as I said, and it was everything in my person to just make it through one hour. Mm. And I remember just having moments when I had to just walk out of the classroom and I, I still pray for those kids and I know that they're fine. But, um, you know, that was just a really trying time in my life. And so I woke up one morning and just decided that I was going to run. I was going to start running, and which is hilarious because I have never run a day in my life at this point. <laughs> Which, you know, that, uh, you know, it's got to be the Holy Spirit if I'm going to run. Totally. So Running I, and me have a love-hate relationship, <laughs> I will just say. And too. And, and I, I'm saying that by being someone who has run a half marathon. Yeah. But oh, it's... I hear you. I keep yeah. waiting to like it. It's just not working out yep. for me. Yep. We get it. I love it sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes it's my worst enemy. I hear I you know. on that. But okay. at this point, I had never even given it a chance to love it because I had never even considered running. So okay. You know it was the spirit, even though I didn't know it was the spirit at the time. And so I love how God can work even on hearts who don't even know him. That's right. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's I, awesome. I really see God's hand so much in my complete story, even from the time of conception. I think that's true of, of all of us. If we look at our story, even write it out, I think even before you are a believer— you can see where he was showing up in your life. And that's very true of my own story. But I just decided to start running. So I signed, I signed up for the Indianapolis uh, mini marathon, which is a half marathon in Indianapolis, obviously in the month of May associated with the Indy 500. And I joined this running group that was ironically, not ironically meeting at a church. And I just began to train for this half marathon. And my aunt had given me the Michael W. Smith worship CD. She was a strong, strong believer. I just really knew that I was struggling. And so she sent this to me in the mail and I kind of blew it off to be completely honest because at the time I wasn't a believer and I didn't really think too highly of Christian music. The Christian music I had heard at the time wasn't really all that great to be completely honest. So I thought, okay, thanks, Aunt Nancy, and sort of threw it on my counter. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, but I think I'll pass. So one day, though, I was going out for a run, and I grabbed that CD, and hysterically enough, I don't know if you remember, Jackie, or not, but <laughs> do you remember the Discman? Oh, yes. I re okay. Actually, I remember before the Discman, there were these Walkmans with cassettes. That's yes. what, I, that's what I, had. I had. I had that, too, but see, I had stepped up in the world. You and were advanced. I had, yeah. I had a CD player that I wore on my arm. <laughs> Which just still to this day, my kids think it's the funniest thing. They can't even fathom that I used to go on a run with a CD player on my oh, arm. And really, I can't either. So but great. Oh, I love it. I know. Isn't it the best? And so I was going out for a run and I just saw that CD sitting there. And there was something, God, that mm -hmm. possessed me to pick that CD up and, and stick it in the CD player as I ran. And so I started running. It was a beautiful day. And I really started listening to those words. And so seeds were being planted at that time. And about probably a month after that experience, and again, keep in mind, I was going to this beautiful church once a week in Indianapolis, Indiana, where the running group met, just happened to meet at this church. 
And so every now and then on the way after that, way out of the church after the class, I would just look up into that cross and it would speak to me and it would just sort of beckon to me. Um, and I would just then keep walking, but it did catch me every time. So all these seeds are being planted. About a month later, I met a woman uh, who worked for an organization called Priorities Associates. It is a leg of Campus Crusade that targets young working professionals. So they have the same outreach, say, and the same goal as Crew does, but they uh, go after people, or not go after, you know what I mean, that sounds bad, but they, their target audience would be well. They those, pursue. They pursue. They pursue. That's a much better word. Because their heart is for those people who don't know Christ, right. who are the the working successful professional person. So it's a different target that they're they're trying to customize towards you to present the gospel in a way that That's is right. meeting you where you are. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, honestly, their their target market was me. Um, I had lots of questions. I was in a really awful time in my life. And so I started to meet with Marcy is her name. And she really was so patient and just filled with grace and answered really, really hard questions and was able to be straight up with me when she didn't know the answer. There are a lot of questions in our faith that we just don't know the answer to on this side of heaven Mm -hmm. and we're not going to. And she was straight up with me about that. And I really appreciated that. And so I started to really think about having a relationship with Jesus at that point and really started to think about who Jesus was. And I was presented with the gospel for the first time at that point. So this would have been the first time in your life for you to have been exposed to an idea that, wow, this God thing might just actually be a really practical Yes. Something that really meets me where I am and actually could be a relationship instead of just a God in the sky who maybe Mm -hmm. isn't really involved. Yep. You hit the nail on the head. That's exactly how I thought of God. And so I had never really considered having a relationship with God, to be completely honest with you. I just thought he was just someone who moved the chess pieces down below. And Well, yeah, I think that's how a lot of people are thinking of God. And I think that impedes them from being able to really hear or accept who he could possibly be, you know? Yes. And so once I had heard the gospel and really understood for the first time that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled with God, I was just blown away and of course accepted Jesus right there on the spot because I had pretty much been researching it for a couple months, even though I didn't really realize I was researching it. And, but as most of us know, who are later in life believers, that doesn't mean then that all your problems are solved and that everything can be tied up in a nice little package with a pretty bow on the outside. Oh, I know Uh, that. (laughs) (laughs) So soon after that, um, my father, collapsed one day. He was working as a maintenance man. And and keep in mind, this is a man with an MBA from the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. Mm. Um, But because he had abused his body so much and had uh, just had such a terrible bout with alcoholism, his long-term and short-term memory had been impacted. He had brain damage. Mm. And so he was working maintenance um, and he collapsed on the job. And I was teaching at the time, of course, and this is all while I'm separated from my husband. Right. Well, how did you discover that he collapsed? The principal of the school where I was working walked down one day, and as soon as she opened the door, she just wore a look on her face. I knew something wasn't right. And so she came over and she said, Natalie, your father has collapsed and you need to get to the hospital. Well, the ironic thing is that 
I am from a small town in Indiana called Lebanon, Indiana, originally. And then my family moved to Indianapolis when I was 12. But mm. the woman who had done intake at the hospital when my father was taken in mm-hmm. knew that he had a daughter named Natalie Chambers. And so she had researched me online and found me as a teacher at a school that was about 30 minutes from there. And so she called the school. And wow. I know, isn't it crazy? And found me. And so the principal came down. Prior to HIPAA, huh? Yeah. Oh, yes. Very much prior to HIPAA. That would not happen this day and age. I know. So, of course, I went immediately to the hospital and my father was being kept alive uh, by one of the, um, not an iron lung, but the, uh, it kind of looks like a balloon. You probably know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I do. The respiratory therapist is keeping him alive, not right. with a machine, just manually pumping that into his lungs to keep wow. him alive. And I need to just say, too, that my father, though he had been sober for six years at this point, uh, did trade addictions. He was smoking probably up to three packs of cigarettes a day. Mm. And so I was always very concerned about that, too, because, um, yeah. you know, the, the health risks with that. So, Well, and it's interesting you say trade addictions because I think, you know, we become addicted to things whether it's shopping or, you know, uh, eating or whether it's cigarettes or drugs or what alcohol, because we're medicating something that we don't want to feel. And, Completely. So, and so it's interesting to me that you say traded because, you know, there was still that pain there in his heart. And yes, unfortunately, yes. he just didn't know and have the ability to That's right. remedy it. And my, yeah, my father yeah lived a very pain-filled life. He lost his father at the age of 15. Um, his father collapsed into his arms um, mm. while they were sitting in the kitchen one day. He had a very unexpected heart attack. And I, the family at the time, you know, it was, I think, the early 50s, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, late 50s, early 60s. And at that time, it was just kind of, let's sweep this under the rug yeah, and move just on. just move on. Yeah. It wasn't a, a really considered to be um, good to go to, th- to therapy or counseling. Right. Or so even talk just, about our feelings. Talk yeah. about it. Exactly. It just yeah. wasn't dealt with well. And so I think my father carried that pain among mm-hmm. other things. But yeah. so they transferred him to a hospital in Indianapolis where his needs could be met better. And he went home miraculously enough. And he was put on oxygen and diagnosed with COPD. Mm-hmm. And so that was that. And two weeks later, same thing happened. Principal comes down. I recognize the look. Mm-hmm. At this point, they sent him immediately to Indianapolis. My uncle, his brother, had been in town and had been with him, luckily. And this time was different. Um, I just knew it as soon as I walked in the hospital mm-hmm. room and saw him. For starters, he was in the intensive care unit at a specialty heart, uh, heart hospital. Yeah. And they were very grave about his condition. His lungs were quickly filling up with fluid. Um, and it was probably, they said it just a matter of days before he passed away. Mm. And so it was a very sweet time. I got to spend that week with him and I, I read scripture to him and, and just, I knew he knew I was there. And luckily my father also had accepted Jesus. And um, so when he did pass away, I held his hand, and mm. if anyone's been through that, it's it's just a very, very surreal experience. It's a sacred um, moment. It's a sacred, sacred moment. moment. It's a beyond sacred moment. It's mm. just like when you have your child and you hold your child for the first time ever as they enter the world. There's some intimacy there between mm-hmm. uh, escorting someone out of the world as well yeah. that you just can't describe unless you have been through that. It's, it's heartbreaking, but because I knew my father was a believer, mm-hmm. it was so joyful at the same time because for the first time ever, he was free from that pain yeah. and free from those chains that held him down. Mm-hmm. So I said goodbye to my father, and then here I was just left wondering, 
what on earth I'm going to do with my life. I'm 27. I'm in the process of divorcing my husband who is completely messed up and is going through all kinds of stuff and has left me with an exorbitant amount of debt. And I see no way out of this. And I just lost my father. And I had also accepted Jesus. Yes, but I didn't know what that meant at that point. And I just knew that I needed to go one day at a time and just trust that God had some kind of plan for me. I just didn't know what that plan was. And that is so true. God always has a plan. So much thanks to Natalie for sharing her story here to inspire us as we face our own mud. And that's the thing about life. You know, we all have a story. We've all been through some mud. And this week, as you go throughout your week, I'd like to encourage you as you see others that you interact with, maybe people that you know or strangers, I want you to remember we all have a story and we all have experienced some mud. And if there's any words that you can bring to offer encouragement to someone this week, I just would love to hear your story. I'd love to hear what you're sharing and how you're inspiring the people in your everyday life by going out on a limb and being transparent and sharing your story with the world. So I hope you can set aside some time next week to join us as Natalie returns and shares the rest of her story and how God really met her in all the adversity that she had gone through and how he really brings good out of it and also all the resources and suggestions that Natalie has to share from her experience. So I know I'm looking forward to that. I hope you will be too. And as usual, you can find all the show notes to this episode at mudstories.com or jackiewatkins.com forward slash episode 16. And again, thank you so much for joining me today and for all of you who are sharing this podcast with others and who are going over to iTunes and leaving a rating or review. It's so encouraging to me personally. I read every single one of them and it also helps for others to find this podcast. So you can go to JackieWatkins.com forward slash iTunes to leave a rating or review. So from me to you, no matter what today we're facing, no matter where we've been or what lies ahead, may we all find a grateful song to sing. Have a beautiful day. A never-ending marble fills a press upon my mind I pull a shame that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me You lift my head to see Your strong arm reaches to me Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. A never ending mother fails to press upon my mind. That leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel
song 